Hi, welcome to a train rush. Your snakes and ladders of board games, podcasts. Oh, one second. Shit. There you go. Nice. Hi, welcome to a train rush. Your snakes and ladders of train game podcasts, interminable in length and about as deep as a shallow puddle. Brought to you today by Craig Taylor and Joe Reese. Thank you again for joining me, Joe. That staid introduction I always give every time. Oh, I, I really enjoy listening to it every single time. Do you? It doesn't feel synthetic at all, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't sound scripted or anything. I'm glad you've been able to join me today because I have been addicted to something for the uh, past few weeks. Um, nay, maybe the last couple of years. It just keeps invading my life over and over, affecting my friendships. It's something continental, Joe. Uh, something sweet and continental, and I just can't get it out of my mind. What is it, Craig? What is it? Well, it is the output of an American in Belgium. It's uh, 1836 Junior by David Hecht. So Craig, haven't, we, haven't you already um, recorded a podcast on 1836 Junior? I'm addicted, mate. I'm addicted. <laughs> and yeah, I've just got to keep talking about it until everybody's bought a copy, even though it's not for sale. That's, that's how bad <laughs> it's got. No, um, yes, I have covered it previously, but I wonder if my views have changed over time. I know you've played this a lot at my request, Joe, and uh, it seemed like your sort of game, so I didn't feel too bad requesting that. I've enjoyed it a lot, actually, yeah. That's, that's, well, you're, you're, you're foreshadowing, Joe. Our audience don't want to hear that. I've just jumped straight to the conclusion. We can, we can finish off now. I'll click the stop button. Joe enjoyed it. <laughs> Done. But listeners have asked if we ever intend to circle back to stuff. And I figured, why don't we circle back to this? Yeah, I, I actually listened to the older podcast the other day and you sound so young, so fresh-faced and enthusiastic. What happened? Maybe, just maybe, Joe, I got older. It's a function of time. Yeah, it could be that. Or maybe it's the absence. So what should we say about 1836 Junior? Should we give the old tech sheet nonsense so we can then crack on into the real grist of it? Sure. 1836 Junior, not to be confused with... 1827 junior and not to be confused with 1836 or the other 1836 or 1836 london or 1836 short lines in west riding or the king cooker 36 junior stainless steel 36 hole jalapeno rack which is uh, the number one result for 36 junior in a google search wow <laughs> but I, I do know that craig is easily confused so to clarify it's david hex 1836 juniors it's only one of the two mentioned that's actually available to play in a finished state. The other being 1836, the Winsome release. Which I have played as well, just for the record. Did, did you review that one? I can't remember. No, covered 1834, which is set in a similar geography, but um, is not this. Well, 1836 Junior is, as you mentioned, freely available for print and play and free to play on 18xx.games. I, I am wondering that maybe after this release, the train rush will be the number one Google search for 36 Junior. Mate, that would involve me understanding how the internet works. Calm down. I had grander hopes that maybe we could even be the number one Google search generally, but maybe that's... I'm not willing to put the photos of myself up on the website to make that happen, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> so, 1836 Junior is an ahistorical condensed variant of an unreleased game by David Hecht titled 1836. Having spent his youth in Belgium, Mr. Hecht wished to create a game as a homage to the country, due to a wish to reflect and integrate the history of Belgian railway development into the title. He struggled to find an interesting and varied enough game in it, later expanding its geography to include the region of Holland. His efforts ultimately resulted in a game that had too strong a linearity, creating an unbalanced and repetitive play experience. Hecht was unable 
to work his 1836 into a, a finished state. But the designer was motivated to salvage something from this failed project, a smaller, shorter game variant set in the same geography. It's actually quite interesting because Federico Villani, best known for 1841 and 1849, also created two separate and distinct games, 1827 and 1827 Jr., and that served as some inspiration to this project. 1827 Jr., was the smaller, simpler companion game to the original, which was large and complex. Another inspiration came from Peter Jacoby's 1876, a, a small map game which can be played with 1830 and 1835 derived uh, rule sets. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't realise just how much David Hecht was into the historical aspects of trains until I listened to his excellent interview on Wheel Tapping, where you could see you know, he's trying to anchor these games you know, in, in the history of the period represented and the location represented. So pretty much the opposite end of the spectrum to me where I just look at them as kind of borderline abstracts. Yeah, I actually find the more I play, the more interested in the history I become. Um, history I will quite happily bore you with later. But basically, fast forward six years and David Hecht uploaded the files for 1836 Junior in the old Yahoo Groups forum in 2006 as a free print and play. The original 1836, however, never saw the light of day. And unlike what the original was attempting to achieve, 36 Junior doesn't really play out as the history tells it, whereas the various rail companies sought to extend out from Belgium and the Netherlands, seeking to connect its land with neighbouring countries. 1836 Junior tells an alternative story of the companies turning inwards to tie knots around each other's throats. Uh, so, Craig, what have you got to tell us about the game itself? So it plays two to four players. It ostensibly plays in two and a half to three hours. And it is playable with parts from 1830 if you just want to print a map. That's probably worth noting if you want to just try this quickly and then um, you know, decide if you want to do all the shares and charters and stuff. You can just play it with a bit from 1830. It's what you might call an 1830 clone. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's what people call them, Craig. <laughs> yeah, I can't really deny that. I would say if I was being kinder with the definition, it's an 1830 scaled down in terms of player count. So it feels tighter at the player counts it supports. And it's a game that's scaled down for runtime with a smaller bank leading to earlier bank breaks. I actually obviously. don't really like the, the phrase clone, even though I just used it. Even though the game takes components from the original 1830, it plays out very differently because of the different starting capital, the, the different map, and also the train purchase limit, which actually changes the focus of the game quite significantly, I think. Sure. I agree the term clone probably does it a disservice. I think we do have to recognise, however, that it is very strongly born from 1830 primitives. If it's not a twin, it's a brother. Yeah, I, I would go so far to say that it it's, uh, if we're looking at like a Victorian novel as a metaphor, a kind of a mutant orphan child kind of brought up by its stern and distant stock market financier kind of stepfather. Wow, this <laughs> Cheapest creepers. That's, that's what I was thinking. Well, why, um, do you, why do you have to say things that struggle, I struggle to keep together after you said them, Joe? We have got another while to record. <laughs> Anywho. Well, I, I, that's how it feels. It feels like there's something a little bit wrong about this game. It's a David Hecht game, 
but it doesn't match up with all the qualities that he's known for. And it doesn't match up completely with his own preferences for the, the kind of 18xx games he enjoys either. Yep, that's absolutely fair. But Craig, what quality does this game have? It has an 1830 stock market in terms of shape and features. And it also has an 1830 stock round with all the rules and restrictions around that. No selling stock on the first round. Uh, shares go down for each share sold. Buy, sell, buy type structure. It's essentially, as far as the stock activity is concerned, it's entirely 1830. So if you've played 1830, you already know what this offers there. In terms of the operations and the companies, it's identical to 1830, with a couple of notable exceptions that I'm going to go through right now. One of them is that the offboards work slightly differently on the left-hand side of the board. Specifically, they act as, a, if you want a better term, a multiplier against the tokens of your company that you hit with a given train. However, you can't run to those offboards until the free trains are in effect. In fact, you can only run them with a free train upwards because you have to have the powerful electric engines to reach the distant lands. The other change is the train governor. This sounds more like a Joe thing to me. As the fact controller, can you take us through the train governor? Sure. So unlike in 1830, where you can buy as many trains as you can afford, uh, there is a train purchase limit. You can only buy a single train from the current rank. Although once you get to the very end of the twos, for example, you could buy the last two and then the first three. The same goes with the last three and the first four and so on. That sounds dull. It sounds incredibly dull, but I think actually it's really quite interesting and it shifts the focus to something very quite different. And we can come back to that later. Okay, fantastic. I stand to be convinced I'm taking a slightly synthetic position here. It's not really dull. The privates... They all remain exactly the same, bar the reservations on the board, which I'm underplaying now, but that's quite significant. And that's it. You're ready to play 1836 Junior with me, guys. Something about those uh, private companies, though. Well, we're going to go to that now, Joe. We're going to go into Joe's private company rampage. We're doing, <laughs> we're doing sections now. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should have some kind of jingle. Joe, Joe, Joe private company rampage. <laughs> There you go, that's your jingle. Yeah, yeah, that completely matches the tone of the show. Um, one thing which is actually interesting about the very start of this game is that there is a reduced starting capital compared to 1830. So if we compare with the four-player game, 1830 starts you off with $600 and 1836 Junior starts with 450 uh, florins. But... The private companies, their face value remain exactly the same. Yeah, that is an interesting observation. And it kind of ties into something one of our play testers uh, mentioned when we were playing it. He said, when playing it in the four-player mode, it felt like six-player 1830 in terms of the kind of having to buddy up to make companies together kind of thing. So that makes sense. Yes, exactly that. By the time you get through the auction, more often than not, you'll find yourself in a position where cross-investment is the only way forward. There's just not enough money washing around to float many companies at all, and probably not enough to float a company on your own. Yeah, or certainly at a par price you'd like to float it at. It tends to be that if you survive the opening auction with enough capital to float a company, it is at 67, and that's that. Which I think is interesting, actually, right? Because it gives the B&O packet equivalent in this game, the Nord, it gives them almost an advantage in the sense that it's still got the same incentives in so much as if someone pars it at 100, you're going to want to try to force float it to stop them getting the private payout for too long. But they're probably going to be 
near enough alone in having a thousand starting credit. Yeah, I found in every game the Nord floating in the first stock round, simply because the players have nowhere else really to invest their money. You may as well throw it into the Nord. In fact, because of this reduced capital, you don't often see more than two companies floating the first stock round. The typical pattern I see is Nord starting at HSM, maybe, because that's quite good for early revenue. Maybe GCL comes in or Belge. I've never seen more than three. That's not, I mean, maybe it's theoretically possible, but in that initial stock round, no. I mean, stock round two, obviously your bets are off because you can do float storms within the yeah. limits of, you know, how much capital you have available, but it's plausible to start a couple of companies. It's worth pointing out with the Nord President Private, however, that the private in question doesn't close until the first train is bought by the company. And I've seen players play a game of diminishing stock value because they never form a valid route. You can't do it too long, but maybe it'll shake off the investors who force floated the company, who will sell but find themselves in a position where the money can't be funneled anywhere more profitable. Uh, money is really tight throughout this game. Sure. Well, the amount of times I've stolen the Nord, like, you know, obviously you can defend the Nord if you so choose to, but there's a lot of time where players have gone, well, do you know what? Actually, I'd rather start something else. And I'm more than happy to take the Nord off them because early game, it's making as much, if not more money than most other options. And the Nord with its a thousand florins in its coffers, that money can last you all the way through to the permanence, so depending on the pace and the choice of the train purchases. It's a two, a three and a five, probably just about. Maybe some shares in the bank pool. You've got to be quite conservative in so much as not trying to grab all the early money that's available, which then probably means investing in other stuff in preference to Nord stock. Obviously, a lot of these are contextual. It depends on what's going on in the game generally. But yeah, when you look at a Nord company that's been allowed to run all the way through, the end game value for that company is not insignificant. Yeah, and I've seen that happen. And on the subject of cross-investment. I was wondering about it, actually. I was wondering if it can act as a leveller to the uneven positions that come out of the initial auction. If you spend more money on the higher-earning privates, you're just not going to be able to start your own company and then have to invest in someone else's, which leads to increased risk-taking and the likelihood that you will not be able to float your own company for a little while. Um, yeah, no, I agree with that. It creates a situation where if someone alone wins all the high value privates, say, they aren't starting their own company for ages, they've got to take more risk with their stock purchases or more conservatively managed priority deal in the stock round, which then means that though they have access to more absolute capital from the private transfers, they're not going to get it till later. So they have more money available in one hit, but the time value of money, maybe you'd be better off with fewer privates, the means of starting a company and getting access to that money earlier, creating compound value from the stocks you buy. Yes. And if you're left with some privates which you can't buy in, then you might be in trouble if the, the trains do get depleted by the other companies. That only happens to chumps, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. But when you're playing, there's a tension between earning as much revenue as you can from the privates, but potentially keeping them running to block other companies for as long as humanly possible and buying them in before they close. I was only pulling your leg, mate, you know that. So, although, listeners, if you do it at home, it's fine. I, I, I don't think you're a chump, honestly. Honestly, I don't. Moving on, we should talk about the utility of the private companies and how they can be synergistic. Uh, we can talk about the utility of the private companies and how they can be synergistic with the various companies or what happens if they are owned by an opposing player. Sounds good. Sounds good. I think that ties into the reservations piece, really. I think that's, that's where I was naturally going to lead to anyway, Joe, to be honest. 
I'm glad because that will give an illusion of some kind of plan. I wanted to just say, actually, just an aside before we go on to the next bit, that bit where you struggled to say um, whatever the word was. Synergistic. Um, synergistic. You should stick that in as an outtake reel at the end of the show. <laughs> okay. I like the outtake where you um, start and then say shit. That's a good one. Yeah, we should, we should use that. We should use that. We should <laughs> stick that in. Um, right. So, let's, so here's the thing, though, right? Here's the bit where I think you start, to, the lights go on and you start to see a bit of drama that isn't available playing 1830 at the lower player counts necessarily. Or if it is, it's here, it's more exaggerated. It's those reservations, right? Those reservations just make this game horrible. Yes, even more horrible if you're playing an async game and you're not really paying attention to what's going on and you say, oh, I'll, do, I'll just float, I'll float that green company. That's, the, that's equivalent to the Pennsylvania Railroad, isn't it? So I'll just float that. That, that sounds it's probably good and be in very big deep trouble i don't think that would happen so much face to face but online and when you you're managing and juggling various games i've seen some very shocked uh, uh, emojis nice so to talk to the particulars much like 1830 there's reservations associated with the private companies this map is very small joe's going to go into the size of the map and the reservations are in many cases bigger than the equivalent reservations in 1830 so it's bigger reservation areas coupled to a smaller map and much like uh, the game that oh, shall not be named again maybe it's it's not possible to build on the reservations until the private has been purchased in, which means that the green phase has to come into effect, i.e. the first free train has to be bought and players have to buy the companies in to enable you to build in these key locations. Joe. Yeah, so listen to this, Craig. It's absolutely insane. So 1830 has 86 hexes and 1836 Junior has 44 hexes. So it's, it's half the size, but we have eight hexes which are completely blocked until those privates are bought in. We've got two hexes which are blocked from upgrade. So you mentioned Amsterdam, at least you can run a company down the line. There's pre-printed track there. Sure, sure. But you can't upgrade it. And there's two hexes like that. We've got three double O hexes, but only two green OO tiles. So which means that one of those locations is going to be completely screwed. And if that wasn't enough, you're also facing 19 hexes with terrain costs. The map is littered with annoyances and jams where you literally can't go anywhere. I've had players who've kind of realised that in their first, in the first OR, wondering which direction to build, and then suddenly realised that either they can't build at all, or there's only one way you can go, but you can't go very far. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, the game is very, very tight until the greens in terms of stinginess, how much money it lets you have access to, which makes the Nord and the HSM very attractive early game options. GCL may be quite attractive depending which private you hold to unlock it. And I think just on a higher level point here, this game punishes sloppy reads. If you just go, oh, I'll start that company, it looks good. And you don't look at the privates people are holding or the potential track that can be laid. For instance, oh, I'll just start the yellow company. What? There's no green double O tiles left to lay. Oh, dear. You know, it just punishes sloppy reads. Yeah, and I, I've seen you make that mistake, Craig, so. I know, but I still won the game, Joe. <laughs> you did, you did. <laughs> no idea how. how. No idea how. I know. <laughs> You're so, it's so claustrophobic, isn't it, this map? 
the the map itself is actively fighting against you. You've got players holding on to privates just out of spite. There's an enormous reservation across the centre of the map, uh, going from Antwerp. It's three hexes, but it, I mean, it looks enormous on this map because it's so narrow, preventing anyone from going north. If someone's just holding on to that out of spite, it's um, it, it could be horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Should we go into more detail about these reservations and how punishing they are? Yeah, I think we should, because so far we've only spoken in terms of almost assumed knowledge stuff. You know, oh, well, these reservations, there's lots of them and the privates are really important. But I think if we could just expand a bit on that, just to show how they can make the difference between a company being borderline worthless, it could be zero revenue, could just be a meager 40 revenue. Or if the reservations land right, you know, that's in they, they release and you build at the right time, meaning the company achieves maximum value. There's a huge swing there. Sure. So how do you want to look at this map then? Do you want to go from north to south or do it by the companies which are likely to float first? Or how do you want to do it? Let's not strip all the strategy out of the game. Let's just pick a couple of key ones. I think the ones that are most interesting to talk through are NFL, uh, the one in the north, um, because you've had some fun experience using that private to mess people up. I think we could talk to Amsterdam because it features the capital. And I think the other one worth talking about is GCL. So let's start with Amsterdam. It's associated with the cheapest private, the 20 buck pipe private. And if you don't have the 20 buck private or it hasn't been bought into a company, you know, that kind of piece, then you cannot build the green Amsterdam tile, which means that you will be stuck on 40 revenue on that tile. and there will not be a North Amsterdam. It will just be the bottom half. That's quite significant for the HSM player in terms of value they're not achieving. Yeah, so the next jump up to green is 60, is that correct? It is. It's the New York progression. Yeah, Six, and then 40, 60, 80. 80. Yeah. Weirdly, it's probably less significant for HSM than it is for NFL. You think that maybe you could dart down to Amsterdam and get into that you know, high-earning hex, but there's the private there completely blocking you from getting down that west coast if you do not own it. Even if you do own it, you can't do anything until it hits green phase, right? So it's going to block you until the free train's purchased. So you're jammed in up north with nowhere to go but Hamburg, which is only really significant until you hit its 70 value in the brown phase. But with the NFL, you'll damn well want to get down that west coast at any time you float it. Otherwise, it's a long old route to Amsterdam the other way, or at least it feels like it with that super small bank it is but that ties into the next private reservation doesn't it for nfl that you want to go down that west coast right with the double town tile pointed in such a way to let you down there would you let that happen joe would you let that happen <laughs> no so you've only got two choices of tile there you've got one with the straight track running directly to amsterdam that is the dream but of course, maybe there is no entrance to amsterdam like we've already said the other tile that fits there is um is it two curves? It's the double flying crossovers, yeah. It's the double loose curves. So if that place there in a legal position will send you towards the, the centre of the, the core of the map, directly towards a nice uh, kind of river or lowland flooded water, whatever that represents there, um, mm. with no revenue centre to speak of for a little while. So not only is there a reservation there, which, you know, you can block NFL building out of there entirely if the private's not bought in, the person who owns that private can then chuck the wrong sort of track yeah, there. Yeah, which soon became my favourite thing to do as an opposing player, because it completely is completely free in addition to the company's normal tile lay. And um, why would I do that? Well, there is a workaround, but that workaround takes time. And I'd rather see my opponent's trains go 
striking off into the distant countryside rather than towards Amsterdam. Uh, but let's say the opponent doesn't make use of that private's ability. If you don't own it as the NFL, there's an 80 florin terrain cost to lay that track to Amsterdam. Bear in mind, these companies normally float low as well. So 80 is not an insubstantial amount of money out of 670 starting capital. It's a two train. I guess that's the point, right? NFL can be terrible. It can be middling. It can be quite good if it gets its NFL token down in Utrecht. But for that to happen, the reservations and the privates have to land just so. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult. And I've been in a position where actually I wanted to buy a six train but with that 80 terrain cost, I couldn't afford the six train. So then I've got a six train, which is running into the middle of nowhere. And it's an absolute disaster. Did your family disown you as a result of this disaster? They've gone. They've gone, Craig. They've left me with, with nothing but a 10 value home station with um, no hopes of an upgrade. <laughs> what, do, what do you think of the NFL anyway? Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than it used to be, because I used to just think it was trash. Now I think that... Still something I take on with a degree of reticence because of its single station token and the fact it does take a few tile lays to get down to the value centers of the board. And as such, if you aren't careful, you can just be stationed out and running trains around quite low value areas. The fact it's home station's a bit rough as well. It's a 10 revenue home station means that you're not going to be using it as a launch pad for tons of early money. Maybe if it's coupled to that parachute token, you know, you've got the um, parachute token private, it might be a bit more useful as a prospect, but then the parachute token is going to use your only token. So you're going to be dropping your garrison into a fight where it has got nothing else to back up its access. Yet there's companies in this that can only start water points should only be started under particular circumstances, so it seems. In terms of the NFL, the, the history book barely mentions it. It's the, a fairly insignificant branch line that was created comparatively late in Netherlands railway history. But in the game, it could potentially be used as a briefcase company. It's, you know, it's so distant from the others. But I've used the, that private against other players who seem to be planning for that, springing up a lovely, completely undesired route for the NFL and pointing in the wrong direction too, and spoiling any kind of potential for it being a briefcase. I do wonder if briefcasing is really ultimately that viable in this title because the sheer scale of the map is small enough and late game there's little enough track lane activities to do that if I've got a briefcase that I can punish, I'm going to just spend effort to punish that. Yeah, I haven't seen a successful briefcase and never attempted it uh, despite some temptation. I tried it once and it didn't work out very well. Which company did you use? I actually used NBDS on the right. Yeah, so that's the, the company which can't go anywhere until green. And it might be there are no green tiles to place, leaving your station stranded in the middle of a field. Or if there are green tiles, you could orientate it in a weird direction so that another company will have to make an extreme effort to stretch out to you. Sure. And MBDS is interesting, actually, right? Briefcasing aside, that has got such close access to Amsterdam that if you open it at the right time and the HSM, for argument's sake, has built the towns in the centre of the board, in the spine of the board, in a way where there's an opening that helps you, you can just hop yourself into massive high-value routes with more station tokens accessible to you than HSM and do pretty well with it. It's, it's not a bad company. There's just some things where it can go wrong vis-a-vis -vis the availability of green tiles and hostile companies screening you out. It's an interesting challenge. So let's talk to the end of the section, so to speak. Well, I want to talk about GCL because this is a caricature in terms of the reservations littered around it. You know, it's, it's surrounded by 60 cost mountains. It's got a tile with a reservation on it 
That can also be a parachute token for another company should they choose to use it. It's got a double O tile to the top right that won't actually go through to the offboard until brown anyway. But you're not even going to be able to lay that double O tile unless the reservation disappears because guess what? Reservation on it. And there's an offboard on the west that's blocked by yet again another reservation. So GCL's access to value is nearly as bad as NFL's. It is horrible 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 early game company but it looks attractive right because it's surrounded by towns it's surrounded by those beautiful big white circles and that's what this is what i mean about this game punishing sloppy reads you, you could look at that and go okay yeah there's a load of white circles around there oh it's near the baltimore style tiles it'll be fine it won't be fine it's, it's never fine joe you float that and then realize actually the only real way I can position this tile in the early game is horizontally going east-west, then you've got a couple of hexes to travel across to get anywhere good, and the Nord by that time could potentially have placed a couple of tiles, which means you can't even get into the, the one or two revenue centres which are available for that awful start. Another thing I want to say this game has taught me in terms of skills and what a point certainly refined my ability to do is to detach myself from my company. So because some of these companies can end up in terrible positions because of the reservations or various timing aspects, sometimes you need to start a company because the prospective future value of it's decent and there's only so many good boats to float on, but then you have to cross invest in other people's stuff. Maybe sell down your stuff so you've got less of it and you're buying shares that are paying. Maybe you're timing the priority deal so you don't get lumped with something you don't want to own some trainless husk yeah just be very careful when selling down because if you're willing to hang on to that future prospect well maybe someone else has got an eye on those future prospects as well yeah and sometimes you get a free five train out of the deal joe <laughs> well isn't that the second time you've made that joke uh, well, yeah but it's the first time it's been relevant to the episode look i do i do have a bad habit of giving away free permanent trains greg i know I've done, it, I've done it twice in 36 Junior, and you'd think that people would view that as a sign of immense generosity. Anyway, 36 Junior, a game with privates so hard it'll make you sweat. So I guess it's quite an interesting thing here because privates are normally where a game designer will try to add some historical integration for want of a better term some historicity to the proceedings specific places or specific companies that may have featured in the period they're trying to evoke however these ones are just 1830 clones with different names obviously with some nasty reservations but i can't really say that excites me in the way that it puts me in a place of belgium can you put me in the place of belgium joe well i can talk about that and and maybe this will excite you about all the exciting railway history you can be super interested in that can't you craig once I start listing out all the facts to you. I hope a listener will wake me up once you're done, Joe. <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the private companies. It was quite unusual at the time because the government decided to plan a complete national network in advance of any kind of building. And that started in 1835 and the first line was completed in 1836. But actually the private companies never really started building their own railways until 1840. So I ask you, Craig, how come all of these private companies blocking everything when actually they don't come into existence? The Grand Central Belge 
Craig. It's obviously a biscuit factory. The Grand Central Belge. That didn't even come about until 1864. But that's the biggest private blocking everything across the whole map. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Another ahistorical inconsistency is the Nord. The being Nord. The, sorry? The being Nord. The being Nord. The B and Nord. The B and Nord. As in the B and O. Yeah, I, yeah. Okay. It only took us four tries. <laughs> Sorry, when you said B, I thought you were referring to the Belge, which completely no, no, no. threw him in. No, no, the B and Nord. <laughs> yeah, that company. The, the B and Nord always floats first. Well, the home station is in Lille. Now, guess what? The Nord didn't connect to Lille until 1846, Craig. The Belgian state railway connected in 1842. So how can that even make sense in this game? It's completely shocking. I think you should probably write a complaint onto the 18xxgroups.io. David Hex will probably read it and hang his head in shame, I'm sure. I hope he will. Actually, talking about David Hex and that idea that he was creating something which was tying into history and working out a game which would have tied right into these details. We'll start off with the Netherlands. The very first lines from Amsterdam to Harlem, and then it was extended down to Rotterdam. And there was a property developer who was doing his uttermost to sabotage the railway. And so he bought a parcel of land that was direct in the path of where this railway was aiming to go. He only wanted to sell his land in exchange for a train station in a place of his choosing, namely a seaside resort he had particular interest in promoting, which... I think is, I mean, that is just such a wonderful negotiation. But the HSM, um, the Orange Company in this game, they first tried to legally take the land from him. But when that whole process took far too long, they just simply built a sharp curve going around the land, just avoiding this field. And then when the, the owner of the land saw that his whole plan to get his station wherever he wanted had failed, he decided then to donate the land to the railway. And this tiny change in the route, which had only been operational for five days, it essentially cost more to the HSM than it would have been just to build this guy his his damn station. To me, that tells me that all these nasty reservations, they're ransom strips, Joe, and they won't (laughs) release them until the green trains come in. I quite like the idea of maybe a a private company that you can sacrifice maybe a station in a, a really crap location. A really what location, Joe? None of that on this podcast, thank you please <laughs> i pardon my language an awful location so they can maybe go straight through a reservation or something like that don't get delusions of game design joe that's dangerous for podcasters okay <laughs> that way lay madness i don't know i reckon i reckon us content creators have got lots to say about how a uh, game should be improved and i've been a little bit sick in my mouth now joe content creators <laughs> do you have anything else to say about the history of belgium you know napoleon the third craig no, I'd never heard of him. Well, Napoleon III, he was like, you know, some relation of Napoleon I somehow. He was railway mad and he absolutely loved railways. He was really jealous that Belgium had created so many railways so quickly and France had created barely anything. So when he came into power, he just went absolutely mental building railways. Am I allowed to say mental? I'm not sure. He went absolutely bonkers. These are all synonyms, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) They can all stay in. It'll be fine. And in 1868, the French railway company started to try and buy up railway lines situated in Belgium. And Leopold II, you know Leopold II, 
Of course, yeah, I didn't know Napoleon, but I know Leopold II. Yeah, I'm not, sure. I'm not, I'm not a heathen. <laughs> he felt that the takeover presented a, a military and political threat, and basically he stopped the sale. And this enraged Napoleon III, and he went absolutely bananas. This squabble over the railways almost led to a breakout in war until France got messed up in the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, and so it didn't happen. Wouldn't you like to see that incorporated into the game, though? I don't know how it would be done. Maybe some kind of political random event. How about that in your 18xx? Uh, oh, we could draw a card. It. Stop it. I've only just cleaned the vomit out of my mouth from the last wretched thing you've said. No. No to random <laughs> events. No, Joe. Despite the fact I've bought a game with random events in it. Thanks, Gary. Anyway, I feel sad that you've uh, trodden all over my uh, design aspirations. That's all I'm here for is to tread all over all the designers, Joe. It's just it's my place in the world. Shall we talk about the trains? Yes, let's talk about the trains. Trains. Trains on my brain. Your fours rusted my twos. And now I've got the blues, oh baby! So, not only do the privates act like clamps and vices across the map, there are plenty of opportunities to lay some very tragic track too. Now, in my most asynchronous game, I laid a tight curve towards Gand, and very kindly dropped the Nord onto an unsuspecting player in the next stock round, and floated the Belge, then built directly across to Gand, blocking the Nord from having a single route until green, and I'm hoping those two trains last a very long time. And they can do, and this is the beauty of it, right? That's This is where that boring, boring train governor comes into effect. It adds real teeth to those reservations, because even if somebody does want to chew through the trains to unlock the greens, to create a world of possibilities for their company that currently is denied to them, yeah, you've got to collectively do it. Yes, so the pace of this game there's a real tension, isn't it, between the players? How many trains do you want? How many trains do you have to buy because you need to get into green? I'm suspecting that the, the Nord company will have to start buying through these two trains just to get anywhere. In your situation, yes, but there's other situations where Nord's laid well and hasn't been stuffed out at the junction where the Nord player goes, well, right now I'm the guy who's earning the most money. I've only got a two train, you know, or maybe I'm earning the second most money. I'm quite happy for the other players to be earning less than me. Sure, and that player may also have the, the privates, which are just going to keep paying out and keep paying out all the way up to the five train. Yeah, I mean, so much of this depends where the privates sit. But I think that train governor actually weights the importance of those privates and reservations more. It's not just a phase you blast through and then becomes immaterial or irrelevant. Or maybe the president of the Nord actually sits and waits it out. It's got its starting 1,000 florins. Everyone else has deserted it. And that probably pushed the company into the yellow, the orange, or maybe even the brown areas of the stock market. And actually, maybe by the time it can make its escape and actually starts running good routes, the president can time it right and grab more than 60% of its shares, as shares that don't even count towards their limit. I think the train purchase limit in this game switches the focus away from what you'd expect in 1830. Yeah, it definitely. It provides a timing game. And I think if I was to say anything about this as a why would you want to play this over 1830, it feels like the timings are materially different. I'd say that the key focus of this game, and it's a narrower focus in 1830, is here's the clock. What can you do with the clock? Can you hold or 
bend its hand? Can you wind its key to your advantage? Are you going to dance in time to the metronome or will you lose your step? I'm just going back to past Craig and what a fool he was. I think you said something along the lines of it having a kind of a diminished train rush um, or a stifled train rush, I think was the phrase that either you or John say. Not me, mate. Not me. I don't think that's entirely true, really, because as soon as those second companies float, it's very easy to be caught on the wrong end of the whiplash. I've been caught a couple of times buying a six and buying a diesel and dying horribly. You know, it, it feels like such a slow build up to a, a whip crack, I think. Yeah, I guess it depends what your expectation is, right? In the sense that if you have played a lot of 1830 and you see the twos and the threes blast through in OR1, then let's say blast through, blast mostly through in OR1, then you're going to feel this one is like slow moving things that move slow. I need a metaphor here. <laughs> Yeah, but I just, I don't see it that way. I just see it as the the corkscrews slowly turning, driving into your skull. (laughs) And then suddenly them being pulled out, you know? I agree with you. I don't subscribe to the view I just expressed. I'm trying to unpack and see why someone might feel it. I think part of that expectation of, oh, this is so slow, is because there's so much this shares of 1830 that you notice the absence of that explosion through the first rank of trains. That doesn't necessarily make it bad. It just means that it contradicts what you think you're going to get initially. And actually, if you look at the gameplay, this game really isn't that slow at all. Even if the trains are being bought at a slow beat, you've got one or two maybe three companies floated in the first OR, and the routes are so restricted in the early game, you haven't got an awful lot of choice for track laying, cutting down on the decision time, people busy rotating tiles. And so you're back and forth through the operating rounds and stock rounds at a really swift rate until the green phase hits and the decision space suddenly cracks open. However, maybe because of those trains, the impression is that this is no clone of the 1830 I know. Um, I can't believe it's got these training wheels strapped to the side. Yeah, whereas I wouldn't necessarily look at them as training wheels. They impart resistance. I would look at them as more like a dynamo. It lends more weight to the reservations, a bit more, um, for want of a better term, nuancing around how you get access to that private money by fighting through that train deck and is it actually in your interest to fight through that train deck or in the balance of things are you being hurt the least by the reservation staying in place and yeah so on and so forth i i yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah i floated a company once assuming that i would buy a five and ended up needing to buy a six which rusted my threes which then followed with a diesel out of pocket which ended in bankruptcy it can really surprise you how the the pace of the game can suddenly whip to a conclusion and especially with that small bank as well even if you don't get a bankruptcy um, most of my games haven't seen bankruptcies it often leaves you quite shocked that the game is suddenly over or you're you suddenly see that you're in the last set of ors and you have not got the time to pull off the plan you thought you had yeah it's not uncommon to see two diesels being forced purchased in a table of three players And that crucial timing ripples through the stock round too. Maybe you want to sell your opponent's shares down so that your trainless company operates first and buys the final six. And now Eleanor is paying for the diesel. Or 
Do you sell your own shares so you're not buying the last three train, but you manage to buy a couple of fours to shuffle around your companies? Or maybe situation you do want to buy that last three train. You want one of your companies to pick up two trains this OR, and the only way it's going to happen is if it buys the last three train and the first four train. It's all about getting the timing just right. That's in terms of buying the trains. It's about the market manipulation and getting the operating order correct. It's investing at the right time and it's purchasing your privates in at the right time too. I think everything about this game is, is really skewed to honing the craft of getting your timing just right. Now, when I, I say all that, these seem like all the foundational skills for playing these games in general. However, 36 Junior is blunter in its application. It's less opaque, maybe, as the clock face is shoved directly into your face. But that can be surprising. Yep. Agreed. It's something I've struggled with throughout my repeated plays. And I've had other players who have reacted really positively to this challenge, and others who haven't. And these players have felt frustrated that the game, in their eyes, has become stuck or is stalling repeatedly. You can have a tormented dance around buying a particular locomotive, knowing that next year's model is in the queue behind it. Yeah, I've had the reaction where someone claims they are dead unless something happens, and they might be right. You know, they could be absolutely right, but it depends if you're happy with a game provide you an opportunity to wrestle in that way. 18 Chesapeake, maybe one to compare to in the same space as 36 Junior, as it's a fairly fast-playing title based on 1830 has the train exporting mechanism, which creates an utterly different turn to this. Don't want to buy the poison for? Just put your feet up and watch the conveyor belt dump it into the river. But in this game, one unlucky player will be the river. No, <laughs> wait a minute, that's a stupid metaphor. In this game, one player will reluctantly throw themselves as a train to knock it into the river. It's always in somebody's interest to buy the drain. By the drains? It's always in someone's interest to buy the trains. Maybe you're running a bad company or a middling company, but you're still not winning. Well, in which case, maybe you need to sell down your company and start a new one to unlock a whole load of new capital and to force a new rank of trains. Maybe you think, well, there's only going to buy one train a turn. How can you force the trains? Well, now you've got two train buying actions. You haven't just got the capital. You've increased the action cadence for the chewing through the trains. It's always in someone's interest. I think a problem here is because you haven't got the automatic export of trains, if the players are quite novice and don't recognise it's in somebody's interest to move it on or can't discuss that openly, then you can end up with a dissatisfying game state. But surely that's broadly the equivalent of us all sitting at a table and playing 1830 until the bank breaks, refusing to bypass the freeze. Yeah, I think. Do you think this actually forces players to think creatively around it? You're given a a horrible, horrible situation, and you've got to think very carefully about which companies to float or what to do with a company which is now full of two trains you didn't expect to buy. Can you shuffle trains around and possibly manoeuvre to fall on your own sword to pay out of pocket for the right train the company needs? Now, I see the merit in that. I tend, when I get into these terrible situations, in inverted commas, to see them as kind of like a puzzle book type puzzle. Okay. I may not win this, but what's the best thing I can do given I am in this situation? I've actually written down in my notes what I think of 36 Junior as part of my conclusion, but I'll add it now. I've, I've kind of written it. It feels like an 1830 scenario or a, a variable puzzle to be solved. 
when I say solved, I don't mean the game itself, but I mean that particular situation that you're in. How can I put this? A lot of this stuff's attitudinal, right? Like some people just don't like being put into positions that they feel reduce their competitiveness. And how do I inch my way back to a near winning position? Or how can I do my best from this poor spot? 1836 Junior can throw you into very, very poor spots. Like that situation we spoke to earlier about my MBDS company not being able to start because I hadn't observed the tile mix correctly. By all rights, I should have been dead. I certainly was playing it with a degree of, well, I'm probably not going to win, but let's try and not make my position completely embarrassing. So some groups, that's just kind of, well, put it away. We've got a player here who's got bad motivations, right? But you enjoy that kind of challenge, that kind of... I enjoy it when the game is short enough. And I think that's where this works for me. If you make a bad decision, assuming that your group is playing this at a fair clip, you don't have to live with the consequences of that bad decision for too long. So it's still kind of fun to try and do explosive things to defy the odds. And you do that enough and then you start to see the patterns of what explosive things work well and what don't. In fact, I'd probably say that 36 Junior's very design encourages it. Jammed in with all the reservations and offensive or aggressive track lays, you could find players acting like trapped animals. And in helplessness comes desperation, but sometimes imagination too. And maybe my reckless float storm didn't work tonight, but maybe it will tomorrow night with the practice and lessons learnt around the timings. The game actively encourages you to think about how to go about using these techniques with more control and precision, I think. I think we should probably extol a virtue here, right? Because it kind of fits in here. This game does, on 18xx.games, run reliably in two and a half hours if you've got a group that's willing to concentrate. Yeah, two and a half to three hours I've seen every game. Mm. For me, this allows me to iterate on this. Now, if you'll pardon me a little uh, sidebar, for want of a better term, I did allow you your lovely poems for Ride the Rails, Joe. So I'm going to have my little sidebar now. You told me this could never happen again. It's, it's not a poem, guys. Oh, so, what? <laughs> you really got my hopes up. I know, I know. It's boring internet analysis nonsense. So a wise, learned man once said, the best way to get good at 18xx and to, for want of a best sum, initiate a new player will be to play 1830 a dozen times, then play it a dozen more, play it until you're bored, then play it 50 times beyond that. Words to that effect. Then you will start to see the depths of 1830 and will therefore have a decent anchor reference for other titles. Now, when I was new at 18xx, 1830 took me circa six hours. Still probably does take me circa four hours, maybe five. Depends on the group I'm playing with. I'm not entirely responsible for the play speed of the group. I couldn't really realistically get that many repeats in because trying to get someone for a whole evening these days is borderline impossible. You know, that would have to be for me be a whole game night affair, which, you know, maybe once a week I could achieve that. Or it's a Saturday afternoon type thing. If I wanted to with 1836 Junior, that offers many of the same mechanisms. It offers a stock round that although there are fewer companies, there's only six companies as opposed to the, is it eight offered by 1830? You can still do much the same tricks of flotation storms up to the limit of the company count. You can still do things like selling down. You can experiment with yellow and brown strategies. But I can do all these things in a fraction of the time, see the complete arc of the game. That means that I just can iterate with this the count of times that the wise learned man, Mr. J.C. Lawrence, did say. So, sure, at some stage, I will stop 
being excited by the decisions I'm presented with. But by the time that's happened, it's probably done the job of teaching me some basic skills and primitives in how to operate in the stock market, how to manage priority, how to weigh up tile choke, how to evaluate the value of capital now versus capital later. It's not as deep as 1830, but it probably has a higher utility value for me. Did that sound like a conclusion? It did. It sounded yes. dangerously like a conclusion. It did, Craig. I was wondering if that this is the end of the episode. I was. Uh, it's not the end I, of the episode. I, I, I still had a few. Episode. I, I still had a few more things to say. I thought you were just packing it up. Like no. I don't know. It was time no, no, to no. go to bed, Craig. So. Um, yeah, indeed. This, the this, end this, of the episode, This is going to be the eighteen thirty-six junior of podcasts. We're done. I'm going to bed at a decent <laughs> time. So, no, but actually, well, um, the, I was just going to say, actually, just kind of tying into that, the the game does have a really small bank, and I'm always tripped up on that. And that's part of this kind of timing is knowing when they, the the game is going to end and getting all your trains in order in the right companies those last few payouts to run the best routes. I think that's one of these the main decisions that you talk about there in your uh, early conclusion is what techniques do you learn? And I think buying the right trains, that's what I would say, is one of the main learning points for this game. Yeah, understanding the value of a five versus a diesel in the context of this. If you have a look at this tiny map, where are you going to run that diesel when everything's tokened out anyway? The successful games I've had, I've maneuvered things so I pay out of pocket for a five rather than pay out of pocket for something more expensive than a five, like a diesel at more than twice the price, like you just said. And the revenue made on the five train should earn that lost cash pretty quickly. The other thing that I learned playing this game is capital control. Well, maybe I didn't learn it playing this game, but I've seen other people doing it. You can certainly see this game teaching that skill. That whole concept of deciding that you want to make the force permanent or increase the likelihood of the force being permanent. So you make sure the companies are all parred at horribly low prices. Because realistically, all the companies are going to be started. That president's share isn't going to be dead forever because there's only so many boats to jump between. And everybody would rather take the 670 of capital than nothing at all. So you can fairly safely start companies at low prices to try and protect your other companies' trains. Yes, I remember you telling me about that when Greg of 1836 Junior Broggles Redraw fame set the par price just in an attempt to stop the diesels from breaking and killing his fours. I saw another game where there was an attempt to make the freeze permanent, but unbeknownst to us all at the table at that time, that's a very difficult thing to achieve unless the player who holds the lion's share of the capital doesn't want to buy those trains. So by that I mean, let's just say every company starts at 67 bar to Nord, right? If you do that, there's still going to be more than enough money realistically to buy through to the sixes. Okay, so the freeze aren't going to be permanent. Now, if there was a situation where a player was holding two of the companies and they had freeze, and actually in this situation, I actually had three of the companies, I don't want the liability of having to replace them all. I'm holding enough capital to get through to the sixes, but I'm not going to spend it. You could see a situation there where it's conceivable that the freeze might be permanent. However, in that game, one of the companies got robbed off me because I was running it on just a presidency and wasn't paying sufficient attention. And then I was suddenly incentivized to buy through the sixes to punish other players. But that's not the point. I guess there's situations where it's plausible. I quite like the idea in this game of reserving a presidency ahead of time. So do I. Getting the, the certificate, but not actually floating at that moment. Because maybe at that moment, you don't want that company to buy the trains which are on offer. So you're kind of putting your reservation in with the 
intention of actually floating the next stock round, which I haven't really seen before in games of 1830. And it's great when you've mastered that skill, you get the feeling that you're in time with the pendulum. And sometimes you can completely stuff it up, buying up presidencies and sitting on dead shares. <laughs> What's the point, right? You can try these things, and because the horizon of the game end isn't that far off, it isn't collectively punishing us for an insufferable duration. It lets you experiment with strategies you might not want to commit to in a longer game of 1830. Things like yellow share strategies, where you devalue your company to create spectral shares that don't count against limit. And my, the limit is really tight in this. I think that kind of ties into the observation we made earlier that this game feels like a six-player game at four players. Example given. In 1836 Junior, the certificate limit at the four-player count is 10 certificates. The four-player game of 1830, you can have 16 certificates. So when you have so few share slots available, people who are able to hold more shares than they otherwise might, thanks to the ghost shares, well, they are going to be at a significant advantage, assuming that everything else they hold isn't just pure dreck. It couples together. You've got the low starting capital, which makes it feel like a six-player 1830 kind of thing in terms of having to think about alliance floats and stuff like that. And the tight share limit. Yeah, like I say, one of the virtues of this short play length is it lets you play around with those parts of the stock market and strategies that you might not be bold enough to deal with in a longer running title. In fact, in some ways, it kind of forces you to because due to that low starting capital, there's going to be a lot of cross-investment early game, which means that when people escape to form their own companies, your company is likely to be driven down towards that yellow area anyway, or there's more of a possibility thereof. But that said, ultimately... It's not too punishing. And if you are being punished, it's for no longer than about two hours. Yeah, actually, talking of punishment, let me fit in one more anecdote. It reminds me of a complete disaster game. I really struggled to maintain my control over the timings. I was really pushing my luck with the private payouts. So going so far as to calculate the train purchasing capital. And in all good sense, at least in my mind, the five train would not, could not be bought before the operating order circled back round to me. Except Andrew withheld, of course, allowing to completely wreck my plans. He was only a few dollars off affording the four and the first five. And he may have made it given another run and bank pool shares paying to its treasury. But no, he didn't. He withheld. And so enraged, I sold down my company to float the piece of crap NFL just with the intention of rusting the threes. And my healthy NDBS was stolen away with its own five train. And But sitting there, you know, sitting in my ruin and the ashes around me, it was only half an hour of me being miserable and the game ended pretty pretty swiftly after that i'm afraid the facebook messages you sent to me felt like more than half an hour <laughs> yeah, end, yeah maybe the pretty torturous stuff yeah, yeah yeah i was sitting there just it was an online game just uh yeah clicking through my company laying the occasional tile and just uh wallowing in my misery 
But then what's, what's the difference there between that progression and the normal endgame state of laying tiles in this? A little bit of a segue for you there, folks. Do we think that the track laying in this game is a little bit preordained? I think that there are patterns to the track laying, patterns that emerge and re-emerge with each play, but I think there's enough variance in it. I agree with you. I think the interesting part isn't what track emerges, it's the timing thereof and the interplayer station tokens upon it. Yeah, definitely. Because the game can shape very differently depending on where the Belge puts its station. Maybe it can get right up into Utrecht, that uh, entryway to Amsterdam, which is the highest mm. earning hex. Yeah, another example would be GCL can be good if... Belgian Nord ignore it and let it have its way. I think GCL can have some of the highest runs in the game. It's got a lot of station tokens and it's got access to a Paris off board. But if Belgian Nord decide to shut it out, then GCL can be a terrible company that's got terrible routes and has to pay to get through a lot of terrain. So has less money on the charter to buy nice trains. The timing of this really matters because we mentioned it previously about those West off boards that pay the multiplier and the tight map and the high terrain costs. It really sets it up for a token war, doesn't it? You need to get chains of tokens on your runs for one of your trains, if not two of your trains, so you can hit those off boards and pick up value there. If you're not playing that game, then you need to be playing the Amsterdam game, and there aren't many places to put station tokens near Amsterdam. Like you said, Utrecht is going to be a choke point there. So it's really set up for some quite nasty blocking of each other. Yeah, it's very claustrophobic. Good word you used earlier. When you couple that to the reasonably nasty 1830 style interface of the stock market, you know, one share sold equals one hop down as opposed to the tranche selling present in 1824 and the like. Yeah, this has this definitely has edges. Do you think it has more edges because players are forced or guided into risk taking because there is a ticking clock and you can see that clock running fairly steady through the game with these trains that you can start making more kind of calculated risks about holding on to those privates to completely choke out your opponents in terms of where they can build those taking risks in terms of investment well, you can see that this company has got a fair amount of money. It can't buy its private or that player doesn't seem to be incentivized to buy in its private yet because it's really killing another player. So actually, maybe I can buy that second. I can buy that third share. You can play as an investor quite a lot in this game and make those calculated risks because of that steady beat throughout the game. Does that make sense? Does... Yeah, that resonates. That resonates. I mean, another point I would state to support what you just said, another example rather. Remember earlier I said there's, a, there's not that many boats to jump between. That's what makes making a reservation of a presidency quite attractive is there's so few boats to jump between that actually I want to reserve the last company that I think will work with what I want to do. Because there's so few boats to jump between, if somebody's running two companies, now I would typically, there's a theory here, isn't there? You don't short the company you short the player you know you don't buy two shares in somebody's company if they've got another thing they can chuck their assets into and leave you with a husk with this you can more easily read okay this player i'm working with i'm gonna buy more shares in the nord why am i gonna do that even though they've got another presidency well their other presidency isn't ready to go yet you know maybe it's the nfl and it hasn't built into any value and it's going to be a while before it can build into some value maybe it's mbds and the double o is not available for it to upgrade i don't know but but the point I'm making is it's more plausible to try and make take those risks 
in terms of which company are they likely to keep and then buy the shares accordingly. Do you think this would encourage players to kind of learn that risk-taking and carry it through into other games like 1830, that you're more maybe more willing to take those risks because you've learned how to start calculating things in a game which has a steady beat. You can start taking more calculated risks in more kind of erratic games. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You, you, of course, you're going to have the odd pratfall where you get caught short because actually in the other game there are more boats to jump between and oh well they'll they'll start something here and they'll they'll hurt you later but yes i do think that's the case i think this is a title that you can plausibly master and that is a positive thing for a player because once they have got their head around this and they've learned the deeper higher level strategies of this it will enable them from a sort of a motivation and an accomplishment point of view to take on broader titles. Yeah, I agree with that. You're learning to take risks. You can learn about timing. The importance of priority, I think, is, is really highlighted here. Yep, massively so. Massively so. You've got so few companies. If you're planning on floating something, you've got to try your best to wrangle that priority so that you are the one who gets the first dibs on it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Chucking a share into the pool to try and get someone to buy whatever it takes. All of this kind of learning in a more supported, inverted commas, structure. The pace of the game allows you to make these decisions in a... An, I've got, I don't want to say a gentle way, really. It... It, I don't think because I don't think that's true. No, because no. I was going to I was about to contradict you by saying yes, it's good because it's predictable in the sense that it provides a slightly less dynamic decision space, which means that you know you know which way's up, so to speak. But actually, when you consider what that train governor does, when coupled with the nasty reservations early game, it's still nasty. Which is why I kind of want to backpedal a bit from prior Craig, who used to have terrible views and still has terrible views, but is better at hiding them. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> backpedal from prior Craig a bit and say, I don't think this is suitable for absolute beginners. You proposed it in a previous podcast as being a good teaching game. And I think it is a good teaching game, but it's not a good first game. I would actually say that maybe 1830 is potentially a better first game because at least the map is open and you've got some choices about where you're going to build and you can feel like you're going somewhere, even if you're about to be completely screwed. With this, it's like 10 nails through your 10 fingers from the very beginning. Here's the thing. This demonstrates some of the things I really like about the character of 18xx. That kind of we're building track, it's all constructive, but we all hate each other. 18xx, red in tooth and claw, the stock market where you chuck shares around and you try and tear people's values down before they get past a certain point on the ledge. It's got those features I like, but... Why would I not preference it as a player's first game? Why would it not be the one I reach for anymore? Having tried this as player's first game, to be fair, it landed well for me once and terribly a few times since. It's basically this, right? If I'm trying to teach someone to box, Joe. Yep. Okay. I'd, I'd love to see that in real life. You've got the physique. Thanks, mate. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. I've got the physique of that fellow who's being slapped around with the pads. You know, I've got, <laughs> I've got a lot of meat to take the lumps. No, right. So our listeners love sports metaphors, right? In so, the edit, do we need the Rocky theme here? Definitely. 
definitely. And we'll put the uh, sound filter on that makes me sound like Sylvester Stallone. So, so back to the sports metaphor, because that's, you know, that's our demographic. So I'm trying to teach someone to box, right? They've got an interest in boxing. Am I better off starting them up with the headgear and the bodysuit and the big old gloves so they can learn technique and throw a few punches and get the motions and the literal mechanical movements and the skills developed? Or am I better off starting them with one punch, one kill, bare knuckle boxing? Because for me, this game doesn't shield or insulate players of grossly disparate skill from each other. So I'm going to stick you in there with a UFC world champ. You're both bare knuckles. He lands one to your face. You're dead. Whereas the other title that we mentioned in that Absolute Beginners Learning episode, I think it was 1846, that lets the beginner swim around in the mud and feel like they're achieving something. Even if they are actually dead, they don't realise it. They still get to do stuff. And it very rarely, unless the players play very hard for it, will put a beginner in a position where they've got nothing to do. Having nothing to do until green, and heck, if your opponents aren't feeling very generous, until brown is a distinct possibility in this. In some situations, it is like leaning across the table and biting someone's ear off. Mike Tyson style. You didn't need to drop the reference in, Joe. You can assume our audience are learned people who are massively into blood sports. (laughs) I still enjoy it, and and I still play it with someone as their second game. So, Craig, I feel like we're almost reaching the end of the show. Do you have anything more to say in a conclusion that wasn't in your mid-show conclusion? The only thing I would say is the end of the game in terms of track laying can often degenerate down to a next, next, next exercise. You run out of tiles to lay constructively of any use before the bank breaks. Quite significantly so in quite a few instances of this game I've played. Once the brown cities have gone on the board, quite often a lot of the tile lane at the end is very minor optimization stuff at best, sometimes a pointless exercise at worst. And I think that makes this game quite decent to play either with a spreadsheet for the last set of ORs so you're not moving chips around and you're just recording runs and also have a back reference to your old runs so you can obviously say 25 again, Joe, or playing it on 18xx.games because you can in the last rounds and everybody agrees there's not a whole heap of wrestling left to do. You can just express it to the end. Yeah, in a way, it serves as a bookend to the game, a fast first few ORs and some fast, easy decisions at the end. It ties in actually with one of David Heck's preferences for games. There's an old Yahoo group post from 2005 that I was reading. It's really interesting because he details exactly what he likes in games. And one of those points is, and I'll just quote, I like games where the end game can be executed crisply and by the numbers and people aren't motivated to waste enormous amounts of time on marginal improvements to their roots that won't really help anyhow. And I'd agree with that, really. I think they're quite clear decisions. You make those decisions, the game ends. I say a bigger issue for me is if you're stuck with only a single company at the end of the game, you have no means to shuffle trains and therefore don't have a means to control the clock. Sometimes all you can do is sit there with your fingers crossed. And I've won and lost games in such a position. And sometimes it ain't over until it's over. And that's a direct quote from Rocky Balboa. Yep. I learned a lot from Rocky. It's reasonable. Reasonable take. In fact, that brings us nicely to the recurring section here at The Train Rush, everyone's favourite part of the show. It's David Hecht's 18xx Design Preferences. Choo-choo! Choo-choo! 
Every week we look at David Heck's likes and preferences and analyze whether a particular game is a game David Heck would design or enjoy playing. And today we're looking at David Heck's game 1836 Junior. Is it a game David Hecht would design? And is it a game he himself would enjoy playing? Let's find out. Is this game Mr. Hex design? Would he say, I like this game of mine? I'm not sure if we will ever know. But for now, let's ask Craig and Sean. And now... Let's all have a quiet moment to think about what David Hecht might think about 1836 Jr. David Hecht calls 1836 Jr. somewhere between a joke and a homage, the result of a game that never was, and there's more to the 1836 story than previously told. While the game was being developed, a Belgian by the name of Frederick Tayton heard about it and enthusiastically contacted David Hecht, inquiring about the game's progress. They soon became friends, and Hecht proposed to pass the project on to Mr. Tayton, who accepted the files without having a single idea how one went about even trying to design an 18x game. And Fred's approach was to reduce the scale of it trying to achieve something closer to 18AL, and decided to rename it 18BE. What became of 18BE? Well, Frederick admits that he was far more an enthusiastic player than he ever was a designer, and 18BE was ultimately deserted too. So 1836 Junior is the remains of two games that never came to be. And it might be of someone's interest that in my research for this episode, I asked Frederick about the project and he still has the prototype files for 18B. And he says he would be more than willing to pass them along to whoever felt interested in taking the project further. But what we do have is a post written in the old Yahoo 18xx forum about David Heck's 18xx design preferences. And I think it's interesting to look at what David Hecht wrote, as I stated earlier about. 1836 being this mutant orphan child. This isn't quite a David Hecht game, is it? No, it's not. If I was going to say, it feels like a Tresham game, obviously, that Hecht has refined. It does feel like a polished or a repainted Tresham, and that's okay. Yeah, I, I did contact David Hecht um, in the making of this episode, and he stated that 1836 Junior was um, about as complete as it could get, but he never subjected it to the rigorous test and evaluation process he uses for all his other designs. So maybe, in some ways, it might be considered to be unfair for us to take such a rigorous approach and compare it to his own standards. But interesting, nevertheless. Maybe it would be more interesting to see how close or how far from 1830 the original 1836 was. But nevertheless, let's see what David Hecht has to say. He likes games that focuses on matching up the trains with the right companies. I think that is one of the, the focuses in this game, don't you think? We, we talked a lot about buying the right train. Uh, maybe not. Uh, I think that more ties in with his preferences vis-a-vis -vis types of trains, things like 18VA, where you've got goods trains and normal trains. Do you think that ties into length of routes, making sure you get the diesel in the Nord or the Bells rather than getting in HSM? I think so. I'll, I'll be generous. I'll give you that. But I, I, I think you could contest it if you chose to. He says he likes route building to be fairly obvious without being boring. 
so he tends to like games with destinations or other rules that tend to drive the routes, which you could argue the offboards there yep. create situations where you're trying to create really good routes with those tokens. Yep, tick. I like strategic games where the focus is on making a few big decisions rather than the tactical ones. I, I can, you know, on my, on my right hand here, I'm holding it up, Craig. You, you can't see it because we're not. Um, I, can on, I can on the hidden camera I've put in your office, mate. <laughs> it's which company to float. It's who will buy the last train of rank. It's where are you going to put your station? Who's going to buy the six train to rust the threes? And is someone going to buy a diesel? Those are five points there, which I've just sprung up inside my head. Are kind of the main, it's just the main beat of the game. The, the, the big weighty decisions. There's tactical opportunities. You've got to keep your eyes open, but that's so far so 18xx, right? I like games that have a beginning, middle and end, where you have to make a real trade-off between optimising your early position and your late one. I think that probably fits in with 36 Junior. Um, Go on, why? Expound on that. I think this game, as we've noted, the very structure of this game and how there is a, a limit to the trains really makes it feel a game with distinct phases. You've got your initial struggle of not being able to build anywhere. The middle where there's the rush to upgrade in the right places, ensuring you get your double O's in the right position on the map along with the position of the stations to ensure you're not tokened out. Who will float a second company? And then you have the burst of payouts and the question over who will pull the six and the diesel triggers. Uh, I think it's a bit more to it than that. I think some of the companies are structurally better during different parts of the game as well. Like Nord obviously works very well straight from the start, appropriately built. HSM feels like a wave one company that you want to start at the start. Belge can be started early probably better off in the mid game along with gcl then the late game companies kind of mbds and nfl and of course a lot of these things will vary based on if hsm is spun up in a way that puts mbds in a point where it can access or if belge starts up because if belge doesn't start up then mbds is probably slightly more attractive because it's more likely to get into amsterdam so maybe i start that early there's lots of it depends but i think broadly speaking the companies seem to be structured in such a way where some of them are better prospects early and some late and the balancing of the tokens on the charter kind of lends itself to that right like hsm for me feels like an early company because it's got an easy pair of two trains it can run what's the greens hit and it's got a high value home station but it's only got one station token this is like the games where everyone has about the same level of work to do at the beginning middle and end which doesn't hold up in 36 juniors players will often find themselves without a company to run at the beginning and the companies are often floated in a particular order due to their various uh, restrictions and prospects he says he likes simple clean tile sets but he hates tile shortages or tile deny tactics oh well i don't know why he built this then because it's <laughs> he's dripping in that yeah i know i know he says he likes operationally centered games better than financially centered games but if you're going to take 1830 as this with the stock market unchanged you're going to get a couple of companies in the yellow and brown and those areas of the stock market are particularly important in this title i found because of the reduced certificate limit. If you know how to control and maintain high share density, uh, you're highly likely to do well when you play. Extra shares do not count towards your limit of the likely difference between victory and uh, the rest of the losers in this game. Yeah, broadly agree. He says, yeah, tying into that about the stock market, I like a fairly, um, oh, I don't even know how to pronounce that word, quasian? Quasian? You could substitute that word with quiet but i think it's quiescent uh, where it's rare to have a stock market round from hell 
I don't think I've seen a hugely extended stock rounds in this game, but I have seen a lot of trading of companies, companies stolen, things going all over the place, and float storms, etc. And do you know how you know that David Hecht's a gentleman, Joe? Tell me. I, I do not know. Is it his top hat? No, it's not that. It's not the fact he's travelled the world. It's the fact that he uses the asterisks to uh, mask out the last letters of the word hell. He did. Um, yeah. And I did not uh, censor that. Like Safe did. for the kids. So, am I Safe not a gentleman? I, I just proved myself no, I am not. You're a charming rogue, but it's okay. I've heard that IQ is loosely trended along with people who use swear words more, Joe. So <laughs> I'm going to take it that you're just a learned man who likes to swears. By heck I don't. Good stuff. Have you got another poem for me? I haven't, but I've got a conclusion which could actually come at the end of this podcast, Craig. Is that where they're going to go? I quite, I quite like your, your central conclusion. Just for the record, dear audience, Joe asked me to stop foreshadowing my conclusions because it makes it a total swine to edit. And one of these days, I'll be a good friend and I'll stop spouting rubbish in the middle of the podcast. So sorry, Joe. You know what's frustrating is that everyone's tuned in to hear your conclusions, which they get halfway through the episode. They're going to turn off. They don't, they don't care about my conclusions, where it's come in the, the proper place for one. No, there's no truth in that. So, Joe, let's move on from that shroud of lies onto your <laughs> conclusion about 1836 Junior. Okay. I think we've said enough, so um, I'll keep it fairly short. I've used quite poetic language to describe the violence in this game. Uh, so here's a less violent metaphor. If 1830 is a grapefruit, then 1836 Junior is a slice of it, with no added sugar. It's sharp and short, and feels like it ends at the right moment, often too soon. I have really enjoyed it, and I'm still really enjoying it, going into double figures. As a counterbalance, though, it does feel like an 1830s scenario map, a game with removed decisions for a finer focus. It certainly has enough variability from game to game, despite its narrower decision space, but I was at times left wondering whether I'd choose this over a game that plays in a similar time frame, like Food Chain Magnate or Antiquity, games that feel more complete and not a reduced version of something else. It had me wishing not only for 1836, the original 1836 and what it could have been, but larger and broader games in general. It was giving me a sample of something without delivering the breadth of decisions other titles present uh, in their designs. Of course, there's that longer playtime that goes with them, so there's that compromise. So I think it's a matter of taste. Are you here to discover a decision space, or spend time hitting repeat and perfecting your skills within it? If the former, it probably doesn't take too long to see through the general arc of the game, those key decisions I counted out a moment ago. However, if you're anyone like me, it might take quite a few games to adapt to the metronome and balance both conservative and aggressive play within the mechanical innards to master the beat of this ticking pocket clock. Can I respond to one of your points? You were saying about it feeling more known, and I broadly agree with that. You know, it feels more knowable. But then I don't have a problem with that in the context. To use a friend's turn of phrase, if you're sticking this in front of tourists for the most part, or using it to fill out a session at the end of a gaming con or something like that, I think it's perfectly good to have a game where you go, do you know how to play 1830? Yes. Brilliant. I can teach you the rules for this inside five minutes, literally. 
for me, the utility value on this game as a result is through the roof. This game has very much got compromises versus 1830, you know, and they're conscious compromises to change the focus, as we discussed earlier, and compromises that result in a quicker runtime and something that's potentially easier for newer players to digest and attain mastery of. Does that mean that I'm going to arrange a weekend session on a Sunday where I invite my local friends around with a big spread and a barbecue to sit down and play 1836 Junior? Probably not. This is a daily driver. That's what I liken it to. It's not the posh coffee you buy from Square Mile Coffee Roasters, as recommended by Jake Klopfenstein. No, this is your daily drive. I bought it down, press a manger. It's nice enough. It's not super perfect and complex. But I have had people who play lots of 18xx enjoy this if they go into it with the right attitude. I don't think this is just for beginners. I think you'll get to a stage where you'll stop seeing value in it. But by the time you've got there, your print and play copy that you've put, you know, 10 hours into making and maybe 50 pounds worth of materials into building, it won't owe you anything. If you're like me and you're reasonably late to the party and haven't played that much 1830, played a lot of 18xx maybe, but haven't played tons and tons and tons of 1830 specifically, I think this one's worth, worth making. Really do. And if you're fed up with the 1830 variant, Something we completely ne neglected to mention, it's because, well, I haven't got any experience of it. You can play with 56 rules. I still can't vouch for that. Frustratingly, it was what was putting me off doing full coverage of this previously was the fact that we haven't played the 1856 variant. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's, I'd like to revisit that at some point. Anybody who has played the 186 variant and can extol its virtues or lack thereof, please do contact the show. I think it's just in keeping with the train rush and... Just doing a half-assed job, though, isn't it? Pretty much, but we can split the arse between two shows. <laughs> Does that stay in? <laughs> I, I've won. <laughs> that, that, that could stay Oh, oh. <laughs> 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 Right, so, on that note, <laughs> it's, a, it's a goodbye from me. <laughs> Goodbye from me. Oh dear. Right. Do we need to record anything else? <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. Is that is that how we want to end it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh dear. Oh. oh dear. I I think I record. <laughs> Oh man, oh, I'm crying. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Oh, you know, I can't put the safer work one on Apple, can I? That's going to have to have the old explicit exclaimer on it. Bugger. <laughs> oh no, we said hell as well. That's the average age of our listeners is 206. I wouldn't worry about it too much. <laughs> oh. Uh. oh dear. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> that could be a really shit episode for what it's worth, Joe. I know. Uh, I think it'd be all right. I'd be okay. Uh, I think with an ending like that, it'll, you know, it's, it's, it's worth it. <laughs> Just, oh, dear. I, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, what? Okay, is that going to Shall I click stop? Yeah. Yeah, cool. You've been listening to The Train Rush. If you'd like to talk to the people behind the show, 
You can reach us on Twitter, at The Train Rush. You can engage with us via pictures using Instagram, the underscore train underscore rush. You can contact us on Facebook, search for The Train Rush. Alternatively, you can email us, craig at thetrainrush.com. If you prefer your engagement as more of an open forum, why not come to our Board Game Geek Guild, number 3342. Thank you for listening.